I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, June 17th, 2013. Had a fantastic time at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. Glad to be home. Don't have any current speaking engagements on the calendar, (laughs) for which I'm actually pretty happy about. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, the job of a pastor is not to motivate you. The job of a pastor is not to inspire you. The job of a pastor is not to make you feel good, feel like you can take on the Death Star and the armies of the evil empire. And No, the, you see, <clears throat> the job of the pastor is actually quite simple, okay? Keep in mind, he's not God. Um, he's a man. And he ha- is in an office established by Christ and God himself, and that office has particular duties, Things that you're supposed to do. So think of it this way, okay? If uh, I were to hire you, and not that I have any authority to do such a thing, but if I were to hire you to be the local dog catcher of the town of Fishers here in uh, central Indiana, okay? Uh, Let's pretend I have this authority, and I hire you to be a dog catcher. And your job, well, is to catch stray dogs. Pretty straightforward, right? If there's a dog out there, that's wandering along, personless, doesn't have any identification on it, your job is to round up that dog and bring it to our central dog processing you know, building, the dog pound, right? Now, if, let's just say, you know, I hired you for the job, uh, you're installed as the local dog catcher of Fishers, Indiana, and uh, then I decide I'm going to check in on how you're doing, okay? 
And let's say that rather than seeing you doing your job as a dog catcher, instead, what I find you doing is putting on a dog show. Now, your job does have something to do with dogs, but your job has nothing to do with training them to do tricks and and things like that. And so I say to you, what are you doing? Well, I'm the dog catcher. Yeah, I, I know that you're the dog catcher. Um, why aren't you out catching dogs? Well, I, you know, I didn't think that catching dogs is really that relevant. In fact, I found that people really don't pay attention to me when I'm catching dogs, uh, unless it's their dog. And for the most part, you know, no one notices me, and I, you know, I just I'm not feeling satisfied in my work, and so I decided to catch a few dogs and then teach them some tricks and then put on a show here in the local park. Um, you know, that's great and all, but, um, putting on a show in the local park has nothing to do with your job. In fact, on the way over here to, you know, check in on you, I saw a stray dog and, you know, immediately thought you better get to work and catch it. So, um, why aren't you doing your job? You get what I'm saying. So, um, many pastors today, well, they're not doing their jobs, um, they are doing things that sound like they're somewhat related to something that has to do with the church. Um, but the, for the most part, they're not doing their job. And so you ask the question immediately, you know, well, well, what's their job, Chris? You know, and I'm glad that you asked the question because Scripture doesn't actually leave any wiggle room when it comes to these things. It lays it out rather clearly um, in those epistles that we call the pastoral epistles. So <clears throat> let me um, let me read to you from one of those pastoral epistles, Second Timothy. I'll start at chapter three. I'll start at chapter three, and uh, I'll start at verse fourteen. These are instructions given by the apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy, and here's what he says: But as for you, Pastor Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out or God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped and complete for every good work. So I charge you, therefore, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, or you can say sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, a couple of things I'd like to point out from this passage. Now, keep in mind the time in which Paul wrote this letter. Now, he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, the common author, by the way, in every single biblical book of the Bible is God the Holy Spirit, even though the human instruments that were inspired to write those words, they, they differ. Their grammar is different and things like that. The one common author is God the Holy Spirit. And so the time which the Apostle Paul wrote this important pastoral epistle 
was a time in human history that was marked by a proliferation, if you would, um, of paganism, of idolatry, of polytheistic pagan ideas and notions. In fact, uh, as Paul traveled to Athens, he was incensed. You know, really, his his heart within him was angered. And, you know, due to all of the idols that he saw in the city of Athens of his day. So keep this in mind, okay? Back in Paul's day, there were pagans everywhere. So Paul is not talking about a general condition of humanity when he says that there, a time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He's not talking about a general case in, the hum, in human history. He's talking about a condition that will come and make itself visible and apparent within the church or the visible church in places that call themselves churches and claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. So here's the question. Is the church that you go to, is your pastor doing his job to preach the word in season or out of season, to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine? Is he bucking the trend in you know that is so prevalent in today's churches where, you, over and again, I receive emails um, from pastors who've been told by their congregation to tone that Bible stuff down, to dial back that Bible stuff. Stop giving us so much Bible. Yeah, I've heard from pastors who've been warned and, in some cases, have been shown the door for preaching what's in accord with sound doctrine. Now, you're thinking, well, Chris, what you're basically saying to me as a pastor is that I, I'm commanded by Jesus to preach the word in season and out of season, even if it means me losing my job? You bet your bippy. That's exactly what I'm saying. Your job and the, your duties come from God himself. You have no freedom whatsoever to deviate from what God has commanded you to do. You know, think of it this way. Okay, when we look at well the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments. There's ten of them. You know. um, there's some in there regarding stealing and bearing false witness and having no other gods and committing adultery and coveting and things like that, right? Now the Ten Commandments don't say, "Thou shalt not steal much." Thou shalt not steal often. Thou shalt not steal on too many occasions. It says, "Thou shalt not steal," right? Okay. Well, here, this charge given to pastors, preach the word in season and out of season. It doesn't say preach the, preach the word most of the time in season and out of season or preach the word uh, when, you know, it's okay. It's not going to cost you your job. And that doesn't say that at all. It says preach the word in season, out of season for a time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. Now, are we in that time? Maybe. Maybe we are. We're, maybe we're in that exact time when the Apostle Paul prophesied that we would, you know, the church would come to this point where people 
would not endure sound doctrine within the visible church, within those places that call themselves churches, by people who call themselves Christians. Okay, maybe that's where we are. But you know, it, your job, pastor, is to preach the word, even if it costs you your job. And you're thinking, well, I've got a family to feed. Yeah, I understand that. But the thing is, is that not only do I understand it, God understands it. God knows what you need. God knows that you need to feed your family. You think God's going to leave you high and dry and make it so you can't survive when you're doing what he's asked you to do? Think about it. But that being the case, regardless, your job's to preach the word. You're not supposed to dial back the doctrine. You're not supposed to dial back or smooth off or shave off the hard edges of Scripture. Your job, pastors, to preach the word, to preach Christ and him crucified from every passage of Scripture because the Scriptures are all about Christ. And if your sheep are complaining, this is too much Bible, we we don't want the Bible, you need to stick to your guns. You need to say, I'm sorry, but Christ in his word has commanded me to give you this much Bible. I'm supposed to preach the word in season and out of season. I'm, I'm supposed to preach the full counsel of the word of God. And if they will not repent, see, that's the thing. You then turn right back around and you tell those little ornery sheep who are biting at you because you're giving them too much doctrine and too much Bible. You turn right around and you say, I'm doing what Christ has commanded me to do. If Christ has commanded me to do this, then doesn't it make sense that then your job is to listen and to learn and to hold firm to the scriptures that make you wise into salvation? Have you mastered scripture yet? Well, of course you haven't. So let's stop all this nonsense and get back to what our good shepherd Jesus has told us all to be doing. I'm to preach the word in season and out of season and teach only what's in accord with sound doctrine. And you, dear sheep, are to learn from this, even if you don't like it. You are to repent and understand that the scriptures make you wise for sal- uh, for salvation, right? And that all scripture is breathed out from God. We're not dealing with just some book here filled with some, you know, ideas and interpretations. We're filled, the Bible's filled with the very words of God, God's oracles, if you would. I think we'd be wise to pay attention to them. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We have a bizarre program here. We have a crazy program. <clears throat> we do that most of the time here at Fighting for the Faith. I don't know why I say it that way, because if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you will note that often we have programs that are just a little bit on the strange side. In fact, almost daily. But what we're going to do today, we're going to start off with a William Tapley, 30 Gill of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times update. Um, yeah, apparently... We're uh, we're approaching that time of the year when the Supreme Court will be issuing out their verdicts uh, regarding different things. And so William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, is uh, Johnny on the spot and kind of trying to preempt whatever news is going to be coming out of the Supreme Court and the decisions they've made and to give us the prophetic insights and tie them back into um, what the uh, supposedly the agenda of the Antichrist is. And then what we'll do is we got a... uh, an emergent church update. Yeah, that gal who does those uh, YouTube videos called Religish, um, she's put together a uh, YouTube video um, talking about the spiritual practice of whimsy. Yeah, um, no, <laughs> my first question out of my mind is, where does the Bible teach spiritual practices again? And where does it say that whimsy is a spiritual practice? So we've got that that we're going to take a look at. 
uh, today. Take a break, and then we come back. Uh, we got a, a, a news story from the uh, UK. Uh, apparently, the folks who've put together the new movie Man of Steel, uh, that's the new Superman movie, have have purposely marketed Christian pastors and, and actually have pre-prepared sermons uh, for uh, those uh, seeker-driven types out there uh, that compare Superman to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, movie preaching season is upon us. I get the feeling uh, before long in my podcast uh, stream, um, I'll be seeing all this, the movie sermons for the summer coming through. Usually it starts about this time, so I think we're right on track for that. Well, then we got a Jensen Franklin review. We're going to take a look at Jensen Franklin. He's talking about dreams and visions, and uh, this is a false doctrine regarding dreams and visions that's very common. You've probably heard it from a, you know, a handful of false teachers out there. We'll take a look at that. And then in hour number two, we have a sermon review called Heroes. And we're going to be listening to Blake Stanley from Mountain Lake Church in Cumming, Georgia, um, talking about discovering the hero within you. Um, Yeah, uh, what's the point of having a Bible if you're not going to preach the Bible? Yeah, you get what I'm saying there. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. And uh, since we're starting off with a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, uh, update we, well, we need to do this. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Boom, boom, boom. That's right. REM's the end of the world as we know it. That's our uh, update music whenever we have an update from William Tapley, the 30 Gill of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times. So his uh, latest video is entitled The Antichrist Will Change God's Laws. The Antichrist Will Change God's Laws. And, of course, this is uh, one of those videos that, again, proves uh, kind of my perennial points, and that is, is that uh, the family of William Tapley really needs to step in and take away his uh, videotaping privileges. Um, but uh, without any further ado, here is William Tapley to discuss how the Antichrist will change God's laws. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. As I'm sure uh, many of you know, the Supreme Court usually issues their rulings during the month of June. Now, no, no, normally, William Tapley waits for stories to hit the media before he gives us his prophetic insights. This is, to my, the best of my knowledge, one of the first videos he's done, or only one of a few that he's done, where he's actually preempting the news to give us the prophetic insights prior to the news story breaking. So we can expect very soon that they will rule that gay marriage is constitutional. 
I hope you're wrong. I really do. And those of you who know Bible prophecy understand that the Antichrist will change time, laws, and seasons. Time? Time? And this shows just how tremendously powerful the Antichrist is in these end times. All throughout the world, many countries, Catholic, Protestant, Christian countries, are accepting gay marriage. And the Supreme Court will eventually follow suit, if not this month, very soon. Again, I really do hope you're wrong on that. And of course, the Antichrist will seek to change the most important of God's laws. Now, who's the Antichrist again? Have we actually figured that out? And the very first law of God in the Bible is that marriage is between one Adam and one Eve. Uh, uh, what? In fact, this law predates the Ten Commandments. And in fact, it... Um, where does it say thou shalt make marriage between one Adam and one Eve? This was before man fell. This just has to do with how God created us. <laughs> Even predates the law that there are seven days in one week. Because on the sixth day, God created man. And he created them male and female. Incidentally, I believe the Antichrist will even try to change the second law in Scripture, and that is that there are seven days in a week. Oh, no. So we're going to have gay marriage in more or less days than we currently have. And this may not occur until the Antichrist manifests himself publicly. As I have said many times, I believe all four end times entities are here now. The Antichrist, the false prophet, Enoch, and Elijah. Uh-huh. And who's the Antichrist again? And of course, the first of these to manifest himself will be the false prophet. Because he will introduce the Antichrist in very much the same way as... Got it. So he hasn't been introduced yet. Got it. Okay. John the Baptist introduced Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, for example, that our current Pope, Pope Francis, is the false prophet. Some people within the church and without the church. I am not willing to state that at this time because he has not done any of the specific prophecies that the false prophet will do. For example, he has not okayed the mark of the beast. Well, that's good news. Consequently, Pope Francis could very well be the final good pope, and that is Petrus Romanus. So let me close by saying, even though it is very discouraging for the Supreme Court to break the very first law of God, don't forget they have well, they haven't done it yet. Already broken the Ten Commandments by allowing the deliberate killing of an innocent human being. Now I agree with you there, which is what abortion is. In the very end, Jesus will defeat the Antichrist. I agree with that, too. And don't forget, his primary weapon will be Mary's Rosary. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, who knew that, uh, you know, Mary's Rosary had such high spiritual weapons-grade potential? I, I just did not know that about Mary's Rosary. I mean, if they knew that, if they really understood the, you know, the weaponish power of Mary's Rosary, they'd never allow them on airplanes, you know? Just as David 
defeated Goliath with five smooth stones. And as always, I do offer a free... Yeah, no, done, done, done. <laughs> Somebody sent me a Revelation Unraveled. That's his book. Um, <clears throat> moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra and their rendition of Tchaikovsky's uh, Waltz of the Flowers. The emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, by the way, is conducted by Doug Paget of the Emergent Church. If you're wondering what this spirited piece of music is, well, I'm glad you asked. Um, in case you don't know about the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, they've, well, freed themselves from the modernist definitions of notage that came down through a, to us via the Renaissance and, and the Age of Enlightenment. And they've basically rejected all of that and prefer just to let the spirit guide them as they wander through some of the most endearing classics of classical music. Here, yeah, listen in. so much better than, I mean, you know, the way the professionals do it, you know. They're so constrained and constricted. Uh, okay, I, I need to... I, can you turn that down a little bit? Yeah, um, I'm getting a headache. Uh, feel like they're like beating a drum in my head anyway that's our uh, emergent church uh, update music if you're not we've done a, a recent uh, installment uh, just a few months ago from uh, Rachel me Chapman Rachel me Chapman is a gal who has a YouTube um, well she how do I put this she has a regular featured video that's so shown on the sogo media TV. Um, YouTube channel, and uh, it's called Religish with uh, Rachel Mead Chapman. And here she's talking about spiritual practices. And um, this is what happens when you decide to cobble your own um, postmodern religion together and think that it has something to do with being religious or spiritual. Here's uh, Rachel Mead Chapman to talk, up, talk about whimsy <clears throat> being a spiritual you know, practice. Here we go. Hello, I'm Rochelle Mee Chapman, and this is Relig-ish. Uh, sorry, where we Rochelle Mee Chapman. We help you create right-fit spiritual practices in a post-church world. I have a little online community called Flock. It's a soul care community. And each month we... Ch it's a what? <laughs> What's a soul care 
community. Choose one common core value and we create a spiritual practice around us, around it to help us live that core value out in simple, doable ways in our everyday life. Yeah. And this month we have a brand new to us core value and practice. And really a brand new to you core value and spiritual practice. How exciting. You guys must feel like you're innovative and cutting edge, don't you? It's all around whimsy. It's all about what? <laughs> whimsy. Hmm. Now, whimsy may not seem like a very weighty topic for a spiritual group. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that would be an understatement. Oftentimes when we talk about religion and spirituality, we get quite weighty and serious. And um, I'm glad to hear that. Especially if we've come out of a conservative religious background where everything was very black and white, right and wrong. Um, So you want to get rid of black and white and right and wrong. You know, that would be bad, apparently. So you got to get rid of that. And what do you replace it then with? The idea of making an impulsive, whimsical decision can be very scary. It can seem like a risk, a risk towards sin, a risk towards mistake, a risk towards making the wrong choice. And when we live in fear of taking that risk, we become increasingly reliant on the rules of society and the rules of the institution. Oh, yeah. Down with the institution. We don't want any institution telling us what we got to do. We better start embracing some whimsy here quick to subvert that institution and its evil schemes to control us. To help us make decisions about our lives. So the rules that are in our schools, the rules that are in our churches, the rules that are in our government become more a stronger guiding force in your life than your intuition. Oh, yeah, that'd be terrible. Can you imagine letting the rules, you know, and culture and the government and your church, you know, keep you from your intuition? Oh, that just sounds evil. Now, no, no, can I point something out here? Um, <clears throat> religious Rochelle, and that is, is that, boy, you seem awful black and white about how the, um, the institution is bad. Hmm, weird, huh? Than your gut. Than the divine in you. That- the, the, the what? <laughs> Hang on. I, I want to hear that in context again. The, the, what, the what in me? Hang on a second here. In force, in your life, then your intuition, then your gut, then the divine in you that guides you. Uh, there's a divine within me guiding me? Whew, this doesn't sound pantheistic at all, does it? Whimsy helps to counteract that. Whimsy is a quality of being slightly odd or playful. And a whimsical choice is an impulsive notion, an idea that is not immediately obvious as to why it has a reason to exist. An idea that is not immediately obvious as to why it has a reason to exist. Kind of like this video. This is the impulse. This is the whimsical impulse that we are going to learn how to follow this month in flock. And we are going to see if we practice whimsy as a spiritual discipline. as a The spiritual discipline of whimsy. Yeah, no, this isn't the blind leading the blind at all, is it? Soul care practice. What might that grow in us? Yeah, well, please list those things out. What might it grow if we practice the spiritual practice of whimsy? What might that grow in us? Please tell us, Rochelle. Might we break free of our tendency to over-rely on the rules of the institution? To make- yeah, rules of institution. Bad. Got to get rid of institution and the rules. So if we practice whimsy, we can eliminate those 
rules and our over-reliance on them. You know, thou shalt not kill and commit adultery. Then we could practice whimsy and then we could just kill people like crazy and make decisions for us. Could we reconnect more to joy to play? Yeah, Cause you know, whimsy will help you reconnect to joy. Am I disconnected from joy? If I'm following the rules of the institution, huh? Faithfulness. What would happen to our gratitude if we engaged more in whimsy? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, you just put it out there as a question. What would, uh, would we have an increase in our gratitude if we engaged in whimsy? <laughs> Are you going to be, you know, doing some kind of scientific study here to prove whether or not the spiritual practice of whimsy increases or decreases gratitude? I mean, how would you know one way or another unless you actually did the hard data, you know? And could we trust our intuitive guide, that divine spark within us, the muse, the spirit, to lead us into something new and good? Yeah, I seriously doubt that what you think is that divine spark within you is actually, you know, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit guiding you sounds more like probably you're going to be relying on your own sinful nature and calling it the divine spark if you practice the spiritual practice of whimsy. Because the, the muse, she is very, very whimsical. No, she, she. Oh, well, see, there we go. It's a divine spark in the muse, she, that the divine spark within you. It's a she. Mm-hmm. Yeah. False God, by the way, folks. This is idolatry. So we're going to do some new practices this month to connect to Whimsy. And if you would like to join us, we do have space available in the group. And Oh, thank you for the invite. I am so sorry. I will not be joining you. Happy to send you out the lessons whenever you join, even if we're partway through the month. But moreover, I would like to ask you to get curious this week. You want me to get curious? <laughs> okay. What would it look like for me to follow the muse? Um, I don't know who the muse is and why would I want to follow her? How could I be more whimsical? What whimsical actions am I already engaging in? You know, like this radio program. And what kinds of deeper lessons does the practice of whimsy teach me? Uh, probably nothing. I hope until we meet again that you'll get curious about whimsy, that you'll trust your gut, and that whatever you do, you'll live from a place of love. <laughs> Sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Yeah, that tripe, <laughs> complete spiritual garbage. Yeah, notice the French accent there. <clears throat> uh, that That's the kind of stuff that will uh, send you to hell. Uh, that's the stuff that people people actually need to be repenting of. That has nothing to do with... Jesus Christ, the, uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried for our sins, for our salvation. You know, that guy who calls us to repent and to be forgiven. Um, yeah, he doesn't say look inside for the divine spark, the female muse to guide you. <laughs> Whoa, man, it was... <laughs> Well, that's what happens. I mean, the blind leading the blind, they think they've, they've, ta- you know, they've grabbed onto something. What they've really grabbed onto is just, well, rank paganism. What do you think? If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a. Superman slash Jesus update and a Jensen Franklin update. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay... Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, 
A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premier Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. Warning, if your pastor isn't preaching God's word and thinks that you should practice the spiritual practice of whimsy in order to follow the muse thing in your heart, run. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95. That's it every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, from the uh, Telegraph, not the Telegraph, sorry, the Daily Mail, that Daily Mail in the United Kingdom, uh, the headline reads, Man of Steel marketers target Christians by sending pastors prepared sermons that compare Superman to Jesus Christ. That is a long title, by the way. Um, So this is from the Daily Mail reporter, and you can find this at their website, dailymail.co.uk, and this was published, uh, in fact, just today. The, uh, The story reads, Marketers for the newest Hollywood Superman movie, Man of Steel are heavily targeting Christians by offering church leaders free screenings of the film as well as sermon notes emphasizing its religious themes. The notes titled Jesus the Original Superhero run nine pages long and suggest that pastors show the Man of Steel during a trailer during their Sunday morning sermon CNN reported on Friday. Um <laughs> Why is this news? <laughs> the reason I ask why this is news is because, well, um, uh, the entire seeker-driven movement generally takes the summer off um, and doesn't even attempt to try to actually preach biblical sermons. In fact, that's the time in the entire seeker-driven uh, liturgical calendar where we get nothing but uh, movie sermons from many of these seeker-driven so-called churches. And so... um yeah, 
I think the folks there in Hollywood, they've gotten smart. You know, you know what they've decided to do is find a way to make more money. And so they've gone ahead and done all the hard work for those seeker-driven pastors. And they've put together, you know, pre-made sermon outlines so that these young, enterprising, seeker-driven leader, rather than spending precious time that he could otherwise be spending vision casting and doing stuff, you know, important stuff like that, can just, you know, on a Sunday morning, download the nine pages of of pre-made sermons from the Man of Steel movie, play the trailer, and then just, you know, work through the pre-made sermons. I mean, what could be simpler, Right? I mean, and and you think of it this way. I mean, you you get a whole bunch of seeker-driven pastors to go ahead and go this route. You know what's going to happen? Sunday morning, well, that just turns into one big extended commercial for these movies. And you know what happens when people sit there and hear from their pastor how great a movie is and how it's all about Jesus or whatever it's about. I mean, most of the time it's not. Um, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go, oh, man, I can't wait to go see that movie. And you know what happens? Box office receipts go through the roof. I mean, seeker-driven pastors are doing this anyway. Might as well just make it super simple for them, and then all these people in these mega churches will want to go see the movie. It's all about money. <clears throat> now, here's the deal. I'm sure that the new Man of Steel movie has all kinds of Christian allegorical themes in it. I it looks to me by what uh, you know what I've seen from the previews and from what I'm hearing from people it's like the the allegorical one-to-one ratio between Jesus and Superman is uh well it's on purpose and there, you know there's clear themes going on there. I you know I get that that being the case um, does that mean that it rises to the level of something that should be preached during a Sunday morning sermon? Nope. Why? Because God said to pastors, preach the word in season and out of season. I think it's great that they've done some kind of Christian allegory with Superman. I have no problem with it. I mean, I'm a big fan of Christian allegory. Love the uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Love the Chronicles of Narnia. And I even see Christian themes that can be teased out of, of uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. That being said, that's not what's supposed to happen on a Sunday morning. If you want to have a little cinema group that you get together and discuss religious themes in movies, go ahead and do it on Tuesday nights in the church basement. Don't do it on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. More important things need to be done on that day. And those things, well, that comes down to preaching Christ from every passage of Scripture, preaching the Word in season and out of season. That's the job of the pastor. And so we've got more important people to hear from on a Sunday morning well, than Hollywood marketers who are trying to find a way of uh, make it easier to tap into a you know untapped market, so to speak, so that they can increase their box office receipts. Something to think about. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Time for a well, a money grubbing televangelist update. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats, let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. El dinero, wanna be a millionaire. Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. 
get me a suit that's made out of loot and whistle for wearing it green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. And there's some I can and beagle. Want to live in regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. I'm a paper bill inspector. I'm a savage for that cabbage man. To me, it's golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me. Spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous unum, I want to be the guy that they send out to prove them. Oh, give me money. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's uh, Dr. Teeth of the uh, the Muppet Show and his rendition of Money, Money, Money. Now, we're going to be listening to a portion, not the entire thing, but a small portion of a uh, recently delivered sermon by Jensen Franklin talking about visions and dreams. And according to him, this is uh, what marks uh, the true revival. But what this really marks is Bible twisting of, of like the highest order. And of course, Jensen, of course, kind of having that southern drawl and kind of being like, you know, a southern gentleman kind of thing. He really is smooth and slick as far as the televangelists go. But the problem is, is that he's just as bad as of a Bible twister as any of them here. Listen in as he talks about how visions and dreams are the things that God has for you. And what he's really doing is twisting God's word. And you've probably heard messages similar to this if you've been around Christianity for any length of time within the past, well, five or six years. Listen in. Look with me in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And the old men will dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Also my men servants, and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Joel was prophesying, and he mentions four categories of people that were going to experience a true revival, a true outpouring of God's spirit upon their lives. And it's interesting that the word revive from which we get the word revival, is only found four times in the entire Bible. The first time that the word revive is found, it's connected to Joel's prophecy. It's in the book of Genesis 45, and it's talking about an old man by the name of Jacob. Jacob, in Genesis 45, had lost his son, Joseph. Joseph was the dreamer, and his son was dead, he thought. And forever gone. He thought his dream had forever left his life. Now, that is where the slick twist took place. Okay, that is where it took place. Let me, again, I'm going to back this up just a minute because I want you to hear what he did. So he reads, this is what uh, Brian Wolfmuller um, of Table Talk Radio calls the heresy two-step. Okay, so he reads a section from Joel. And then talks about dreams and visions, and then describes but doesn't read a biblical text from Genesis regarding Jacob, whose name is now Israel at this point in the text. And apparently he's jettisoned his dreams because, you know, his dreams and visions for his life because he believes that his son is dead. Well, that's not actually what's going on in the text if you were to take the time to read it in context. 
So what's going on there in Joel? Well, it's important to note that this passage in Joel is actually shown as fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit shows up with power. Uh, tongues of fire come and split up and descend on the disciples in the upper room, and they begin proclaim, uh, they begin proclaiming the wonders of God in other languages that they do not know. And Peter, you know, so there's a crowd coming around going, what's going on? These Galileans, they must be drinking or something, you know, because uh, they're speaking in, uh, in other languages. But languages that are known languages and their people are hearing about the wonders of God in their own language. Acts chapter uh, 2 verse 14 then says this, Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men dreams, dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire of vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, here's the important part. Peter here was quoting the entire section, that entire segment from the, from Joel. And the punchline is that it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone, Jew or Gentile, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the punchline. So what happens is, is that guys like Jensen Franklin, uh, Stephen Furtick, and others, they take the passage where it says, your young men shall see visions and your old men dream dreams, and they say that what this means is that they are going to have dreams and visions for their lives, that they're, oh, they're going to have a vision for how to have a successful life, how to do something amazing in this life and things like that, and, and look, your old men are going to dream dreams. What this is talking about is that in those days, Everybody, regardless of status, we're not, you know, they could be slaves, it could be servants, it could be old men, it could be young men, are going to prophesy. That means that they're going to proclaim the wonders of God so that men are, and women are brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and it shall come to pass so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This isn't about receiving some dream or vision for your life. This is about prophetically proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins so that people are brought to believing and trusting in Christ and therefore are saved. But Franklin here, like all the other false teachers and Bible twisters, is emphasizing the dream dreams and visions thing, and he's pouring into it a false meaning, a meaning that's not really in the text. He's engaging in eisegesis, and he's very clever in the way he did it. So I'm going to back this up just a little bit so that you can hear this in context. Here again is Jensen Franklin. See if you can spot where he goes off the rails. He's not actually reading from Genesis, but watch what he does. 45 had lost his son, Joseph. Joseph was the dreamer, and his son was dead, he thought, and forever gone. He thought his dream had forever left his life and he was he thought his dream had forever left his life what dream 
grieving and he said, I can't be comforted. And he said, all things are against me. He made that that statement. And sometimes it feels like your dream has died and everything's come against you. And no, no, it's not immediately. It's all about you now. Now you feel like your dream has died. So, I mean, if you were, you know, when you were five years old and you wanted to be a fighter pilot and now you're, you know, you're 50 and your eyesight's going bad and your ears, you know, aren't working like that. And maybe you're a little bit overweight. Um, don't worry, your dream of being a fighter pilot, well, don't give up on it, man. Nothing's going right. This was how Jacob felt. And it was in that hour that Genesis 45 said that even though he thought his son was dead, his son was very much alive. Joseph was at that moment sending wagons of provision that were bringing the blessings and bringing the proof that he was alive. And the scripture said, when Jacob saw the wagons and comprehended that what he had been told about his son was true, that he truly is alive, he began to be revived. The scripture said he was revived in his spirit. An old man got revived in his dream. No, see, I... Did you catch that? Again, that is just so fast and so slick. The passage says that he was revived in his spirit. Why was he revived in his spirit? Well, he believed that his son was dead, and then he found out that he was alive. I mean, by the way, this is a fantastic story where... Uh, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and then sends his brothers uh, to go tell his father that he is still alive. I mean, this is a, just, this is like the apex of a fantastic biblical text that, again, points us to Christ and his mercy and his forgiveness and how our brother Jesus saves us. And, I mean, it's great stuff. I mean, there's a death and there's a resurrection, and all of this typologically points us to Jesus. So let me um, let me read from uh, Genesis 45 so that we can catch what's going on. Again, context, context, context. Those are the three rules, by the way, for sound biblical exegesis. Context, context, context. 90 to 95% of all Bible twisting clears up just like that. Uh, and if all you do is just apply those three biblical rules, you know, context, context, context. So here we go. Genesis 45. I'll start at verse 16 just to get uh, get a little bit more of the story because it's a great story. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have, have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household's And come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father, he sent as follows 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. And he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all of the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. That's what the text says. So why does his spirit revive? Not that he, it doesn't say anything in the text about there's a revival and he feels that he can dream again. His spirit, quote, revived because it says his heart was numb with the report. Remember, all of these years, we're talking, what, 14, you know, 12, 14 years, he's believed that Joseph is dead, killed by wild animals on an errand that he sent him on. And, uh, of course, his brothers knew the truth, so, but they didn't dare tell their father what, what had really happened. And now they get the, he gets the report that his son is still alive, so his spirit revives within him because his heart was numb because of the report. That's what the text says. Now, again, watch what Jensen Franklin does. I mean, it is breathtakingly slick. But this, I mean, this is some of the most subtle Bible twisting I've seen in a while. And this guy is really skilled at, at really twisting God's word into a pretzel. Listen again. What he had been told about his son was true, that he truly is alive. He began to be revived. The scripture said he was revived in his spirit. An old man got revived in his dream. No, it doesn't say he got revived in his dream. He just stuck that right in there. I mean, if you're not paying attention, you would have missed it. Revived. His, his, his dream came alive. His... No, that's not what the text says. It doesn't say anything about his dream coming alive. You're making that up. Want to live. His desire, his unction from God came back at an old age. Which line... The text doesn't say that. You're inserting that into the biblical text. Lines up with Joel's prophecy that in the last days I'll pour out my... Um, Joel's prophecy was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, not Genesis 45. Genesis 45 was written long, really long before Joel was written. Um, Man, this is really, really nasty Bible twisting we got going on here. My spirit and your old men will dream dreams. See, it's interesting how God's word fits together. And the first time... Yeah, it sure is the way you're trying to fit it together. It doesn't actually work when you pay attention to the context, now does it? The word revive from which we get revival is mentioned and noted. It had to do with an old man who had lost his dream. I want you to understand that... Uh, No, um, Jacob didn't lose his dream. He believed he lost his son. Big difference, by the way. Huge difference. God wants to pour out his spirit. And sometimes we think that that has to do with a new generation, but it starts with an older generation. It starts with the elders of a church and you don't have to. Oh, wow. So what's, what's Jensen Franklin doing here? Let me translate in case you haven't figured it out. Um, young people in church don't generally tithe very much. No, they don't. And one of the things that the, one of the kind of, one of the big errors the seeker-driven movement has done is almost exclusively appeal to young people. And you know what that means, though, don't you? <laughs> Lower revenues. Um, yeah, it, it has a way of kind of causing the tithing buckets to remain empty. And so I think what Jensen is doing here is finding some kind of really slick message that he thinks will be appealing to the older generation as a means of bringing them in because... 
it's the older, well-established folks that have deeper pockets. Yeah, something something to consider. To be old, to be an elder. If you've been serving God for many years and you're mature in God, you're an elder even if you don't have any gray hair. But what happens is God says, I've got to, if I'm going to send a revival to a place, it doesn't start with the new converts. It- um, wh- where does this text say, if I've got to send a revival to a place, it doesn't start with new converts? What are you talking about? It doesn't start with the people out there in the world getting saved. It starts with the elders. It starts with the old men and women who have allowed life and the, and the, and the temptations and the struggles and the trials of life to steal their dream. Your old men will... Oh, yeah. So, I mean, again, I go back to what I said. If you're, if you're now an aging, balding, middle-aged guy um, who has a little bit of a gut... Um, and you've always wanted to be a fighter pilot. This is great news. I mean, you can revive your dream. I mean, you've always wanted to fly F-18s off of an aircraft carrier. Well, God's got a, a dream that he wants to revive that dream within you. Oh, this is such <laughs> stupid, but uh, fantastic news, I'm sure. you know. Dream dreams, not lay down and die. When the Holy Spirit begins to move again, Suddenly, people get a d- dream back. They get a desire back. Um, yeah, when the Holy Spirit moves, um, people are brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as Joel so aptly points out, that the whole point of all of this stuff is that people will call upon the name of the Lord and they will be saved. As Joel says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be Saved. It doesn't say, and everyone who uh, calls on the name of the Lord will have their dreams of you know within them revived. This is this is narcissistic nonsense. It's putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. He said, "The old men will dream dreams." I thank God for that because it's important. Jacob was at a point in his life where he had lost his dream. But the old man... Just because you keep saying it over and over again doesn't mean that it's actually true. There's no text that actually says that. ...had his dream restored in his old age. It was given back to him. His dream was resurrected. Sometimes we... Uh, Again, what verse says that Joseph's dream was resurrected? He, He believed his son was resurrected. Almost give up on things. And he had given up and thought that his dream, which was Joseph, his boy, was gone forever. And we give up too quick. We need to understand that God, when he sends revival, can revive your dreams. You see, when he saw the wagons coming. Uh So revival is all about God reviving your dreams. I thought revival was all about people being brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. As Joel says... And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, not have dreams. Something kicked in. Something came alive in that old man, and he began to dream. Even at an old age, the Spirit of God gave him a dream. It's about his time. Yeah, no, again, this is, I mean, serious. Have you been to seminary? Have you taken hermeneutics 101? Clearly, you're having a problem here. 
It's not about your time. It's not about when you think God has to move and by my 30s I have to see this and by my 40s I should be this far along and by my 50s if it hasn't happened then it's just not going to happen. This has nothing to do with what that text is saying like at all. It's about his time. No, it's about people being brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and therefore being saved. That's what it's about. Not your time. Moses was 80 years old when God said, now it's my time. I know your time would have been when you were in your 20s or in your 30s or in your 40s, but that was not my time. And some of you may be given up on the dream that God has for you just when he has on his time clock decided it's time for your dream to come true. Well, there you go. So, I mean, if you always wanted to be a fighter pilot from the time you were a young boy, and I know you're getting ready to go into, you know, the retirement community. Don't worry. I mean, you'll, your dream of of being the hero of the day and and flying off of aircraft carriers is it's about to come true because God's going to send revival and and revive that dream within you. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you believe that, I have a beachfront property I'd like to sell you in Nevada. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review um, about apparently finding the hero within you. We'll check to see if this is actually a biblical message or not. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. 
Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no. I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You got to see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. We're going to be heading down to Georgia. It's been a while since we've done a Mountain Lake Church Sermon Review. We're going to open up our Bibles and see if the Bible teaches us to find the hero within you. But let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Mountain Lake Church in Cumming, Georgia. Blake Stanley presiding. He's not the head pastor there. He's pitch hitting for him. Pinch hitting. The name of said sermon is entitled Heroes. This is week five of their Heroes sermon series. And this is all about finding or discovering the hero within you. Yeah, I'm not familiar with any of those biblical passages. Are you familiar with any of those Bible passages that talk about finding the hero within you? Maybe he's reading a different Bible. I'm not sure. But we're going to test to see if Blake Stanley is doing what Scripture says to do. Preach the Word, in season, out of season, and see if he's rightly handling God's Word or if he's somebody who has no clue what the Bible actually teaches. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Blake Stanley and his sermon entitled Heroes. Here we go. Blake, you guys doing okay? (laughs) I just had the privilege and the opportunity of spending five days in Myrtle Beach with over a hundred of some of your students. And I just want to make a declaration that I survived momentum. (laughs) No, actually... Actually, I actually thrived in the context of momentum because it was such an awesome thing to see so many of your kids have a heart bent towards God over the course of five days. Yes, your kids had a heart bent towards God's, and I'm very proud of the student leadership team, Drew and Megan Cheney, the student pastors here at Mountain Lake. They did a phenomenal job. Our student director, Andrew Cunningham, he did a bang-up job from an organization perspective. And then our volunteers. Wow. We have some phenomenal volunteers that took vacation days, many of them. Some of you guys don't even want to take vacation days to spend time with your students. And they took vacation days out of their busy and hectic schedule 
uh, to go and to impart wisdom and to pour life into the next generation. And I'm thrilled to see all of those things happen. And we, we captured exactly what we sought out to capture. And that was a tremendous amount of momentum. And as you look around today, students are serving everywhere. They took, they've taken over the services here at Mount Lake for the course of the weekend. And I just can't wait to hear all sorts of neat stories about how God is going to work in and through them. So that's how my summer has been going so far. It's a little slow. How's your summer been going? (laughs) Let me tell you something else that I've been involved with in great detail over the past few weeks. Me and my son, Tyson, you're going to see him in just a moment. We've been consumed with the sport of 8U baseball. I had the opportunity to be able to head coach the Lanier War Eagles inside of Hall County. And my son, he played. Yeah, no clue what this has to do with the Bible. Apparently, this is some extended commercial here for something in his life. I, you know, baseball or something. It's shortstop for me. And just so that I'm abundantly clear, my son and myself not only played baseball, we didn't just get out there in the dirt with balls and gloves and bats and pretend to play this game. We dominated the landscape of 8U baseball in Hall County. We ended our regular season on June 1st with 10 wins, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 wins, count them, and zero losses. We were undefeated on the season. And I brought a picture of my son swinging the bat in one of those games that we won. And I just want you to look and admire because this is how you're supposed to swing a baseball bat. Knuckles are facing the pitcher, belly button as well, and the heel is ever so slightly tilted in the air. If you can't tell, I had a blast coaching this group of eight-year-old boys. And at the conclusion of our season, a couple of the parents, they got together as I was preparing my message for this series in this whole banner called Heroes, and they gave me this card. And there's a couple of things that I love about this card. One, it had money in it. And if you're going to give me a card, make sure you put some money in it or it's going in the trash. I'm just saying, I'm just being honest. And the next thing that I love about this card, it has the emblem of my favorite childhood superhero. And heck, let's be honest, he's my favorite hero even today. Superman. Some would say that I kind of look like Superman from, from the movie that's coming out, Man of Steel. And you're like, dude, you look nothing like Superman. It's because I have my glasses on today, y'all. Come on. <laughs> Seriously. But one of the dominant features and characteristics of this childhood hero of mine, Superman, was that he had this willingness to embrace the hero that lived inside of him. He embraced it very well. And while Cody... Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, Superman embraced the hero inside of him. What does this have to do with the Bible again, exactly? Coaching, I stumbled upon this character inside of the Old Testament who has the same characteristic as Superman. Mm-hmm. Character in the Old Testament with the same characteristic as Superman that's embracing the hero within him. Can't wait to hear who this is. He had a willingness to embrace the hero inside of him. He fully embraced the hero inside of himself. This character also happens to have some really heroic attributes and gives us some unreal examples of what it looks like for 
us today embracing the hero that lives inside of you, inside of me, inside of all of us. I can't wait to unpack this hero's life because I believe that it is going to absolutely blow your minds. When I introduce him to you today, you're going to be like, are you serious? Is this a true story? And it's an absolute true story of a real life hero inside of the Old Testament. But I also believe that it's going to help us today in a couple of ways. One, it's going to rob us of all the excuses. And believe me, there are plenty of excuses to pick from inside of the day and age in which we live. But it's going to rob us of all of those excuses that we use to keep us from embracing the hero inside of us. And secondly, it is going to give us some practical applications, some handlebars, if you will, to grip onto so that we can leave this place knowing that here are some action steps that I can take in order to embrace the hero that lives inside of us. So let's dive in. My hero of choice today is a guy by the name of Josiah. He's one of the kings inside of the nation of Israel in Second Chronicles. When the nation of Israel was split, he was the king of Judah. Now, this is the part that blew my mind. I want to see if it blows your mind as well. Chapter 34, verse 1. You can read along with me in your worship guides or just follow along on the screen. Listen about the characteristic of this guy by the name of Josiah. Now, before he reads, let me make sure you understand how he set this up. Apparently, Josiah is a guy who embraced the hero within him. Do you know of any passages of Scripture that talk about Josiah embracing the hero within him? And you're thinking, well, he said 2 Chronicles 34. Uh Uh-huh. If you go and read it, will you find any part of that saying that Josiah embraced the hero within himself? Think about it. Let's continue. Josiah was eight years old. Wow. He is a child, eight-year-old kid when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. This has to be the biggest oxymoron in all of Scripture. Why? That was not uncommon. You know, if, if, a, if a king dies young and his firstborn isn't of age yet, he, he ascends to the throne. It, it's been known to happen throughout human history. Um, are you not aware of this particular historical fact? There's no way that eight-year-old and king should ever exist together inside of the same sentence, much less be right next to one another. Eight-year-old king, that's like saying jumbo shrimp or baby sit. Those two things shouldn't... No, it's not like that at all. ...be together. Or here's my favorite one, child-proof. For those of us that have children, we know that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as child-proof or Microsoft works. (laughs) Eight-year-old king? Come on, Bible, this has to be a misprint. I have finally found an error in Scripture. But as I read and began to unpack the story of this child, I realized... That it's legit. And for all of us visual thinkers that are out there, I want you to begin to think about this eight-year-old kid that's sitting in a throne built for an adult. 
his feet are probably not even touching the ground. Imagine his feet just sort of just sort of dangling there as he's sitting on that throne. He's got an oversized crown on his head that's tilted down and covering his eyes. And I started thinking, man, what would happen if some of the kids that I were coaching, these eight-year-old boys, if they were put in a position of leadership where they could reform laws like Josiah had the power to be able to reform laws? My son is seven, about to turn eight. What are some of the things that he would put into action? Well, first of all, it would be like no more school, no more school. Or school would start later because he likes to sleep late and it would be filled with a lot more recess. He would probably go, you know, that stupid rule about you have to be 16 in order to drive a car. Yeah, that's no longer a law anymore. I think you can be however old you want to be. The dessert after dinner. Oh, man, that's stupid. Let's just go ahead and have dessert for dinner if you want to. These are some of the laws that that my son would put into action. And to be honest with you, after I read the first verse of Scripture about Josiah and him being an eight-year-old king, I thought to myself, this is the type of shenanigans and the nonsense that we're going to read about in chapter 34 of Second Chronicles. But it's not the case. I want you to listen to the description in verse 2 of chapter 34 of Josiah's leadership. It says that he did what was right. In the eyes of the Lord, and he followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, after I read verse 2, I thought, well, one, he's a prodigy. And two, there must have been somebody behind the scenes mentoring and developing this young kid. The previous king, which would have been his father, must have been this godly influence that provided this godly environment that caused this young man at such a young age of eight to be able to have the capability of reigning over a nation such as Israel. I even thought, man, it must have not stopped there. There must be this long line of kings, even the king before his father, his grandfather. Now, what shows in this telling of the story is that um, our our step-in pastor for the day, our pinch hitter, if you would, clearly hasn't spent a lot of time reading through books like First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. Um, those in those histories, we have the stories of all kinds of kings, and so here we're just parachuted into verse uh, to chapter thirty-four, verse one, and. He's acting all, whoa, man, this kid's eight years old, and wow, and he embraced the the hero inside. No, he didn't. The text doesn't say that. But what we have in these stories in First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, are the stories of these kings. Some follow in the steps of David, and they do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Others are idolaters, and they do evil and wicked, and the evil and wicked ones get worse and worse and worse and worse. And occasionally you'll get one who trusts in the Lord and does what is right. And then they're followed by ones that do. Yeah, so, you know, clearly at this point we have no understanding of the history of what's going on in Israel at this point. He's all in a kerfuffle during, about the fact that Josiah was eight years old. Big deal. Um, and uh, it, But nowhere in this text does it say that he embraced the hero within himself. Father, Josiah's grandfather, must have been this 
influential man who was godly and who raised up Josiah to revere the Lord. But as I began to look at the two previous kings, I was astounded because that totally was not the case. Listen to Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 21. Amon, which was Josiah's father, it says that he was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for two years and he did evil, evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. Amon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. Now Manasseh is Josiah's grandfather. And even though Josiah, and even though Manasseh actually embraced and humbled himself before the Lord towards the end of his reign, listen to what was described of him in verse 6 and his leadership. Manasseh, it says in verse 6, that he sacrificed his children, y'all. I know that some of you probably would have liked to sacrifice your children at some point. He actually did it. He sacrificed not somebody else's children, his children in the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And these are the two previous kings that sort of teed up Josiah's leadership, paved the way for Josiah's leadership. And looking at the description, and there's graphic details in chapter 33, homework, go. How do you figure that they teed up, you know, Josiah's leadership? Josiah's father died when he was eight. It's not like he was in leadership training, you know, uh, you know, on into his, you know, late teens and early 20s. This is a kid who's eight years old. Go home and read chapter 33, and you'll even be more blown away by how Josiah turned out. And as I read the descriptions of these two previous kings, I thought to myself, how in the world did Josiah do that? As an eight-year-old kid, I would have assumed that he would have just followed down the same path that his dad and his grandfather had paid for him. Yeah, um, yeah, you're doing a lot of assuming, speculating, and you know, just find yourself being blown away by all these little tidbits and facts. Um, and some of them are kind of apparent and really easy and obvious. Um, <clears throat> again, he's not the only young kid to have ascended to the throne in Israel. But not the case. How was he able to accomplish it? And as I begin to read chapter 34, which gives details about Josiah's leadership, there was three things that sort of bubbled to the surface. Three characteristics, three truths that have to be inside of our lives in order for us to embrace the hero within. Um, again, where in Second Chronicles 34 does it say anything about embracing the hero within. Don't you think if God wants me to embrace the hero within me, he would say that clearly, unambiguously? You know, it would be, you know, in like Romans chapter 8, embrace the hero within. It would say, it would be that simple, right? And that Christians would have taught this from the beginning. Well, they haven't. There's a reason for that. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say to embrace the hero within. Instead, Jesus says, from within a man, out of a man's heart, comes all kinds of evil, adultery, and wickedness. That's what's inside of a person. (sighs) And the first truth, the first characteristic that sort of bubbled to the surface is connected to to Josiah's, his, his age. He's eight years old, and it says that he embraced the throne. And I realized at that point that, man, a characteristic of a hero is heroes have no age limit. They have no age limit. Then as I read chapter 34, I also began to see this characteristic and this truth materialize inside of the life of Josiah. And that is heroes have God-sized expectations. Um, hmm. Where did the hero Josiah, who embraced the hero within himself, have God-sized expectations? What does that statement even mean? They have enormous expectations that they place on themselves, not because of who they are or their own strength and power, but because they believe in a God that is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think. Mm. And where does it say that about Josiah? And then the last characteristics of a hero, in order for us to embrace the hero within is that heroes reform their surroundings. Heroes have no age limits. Heroes have God-sized expectations. And heroes reform their surroundings. So let's go ahead and jump, dive into that first point, that first truth and characteristic of a hero. And that is, heroes have no age limits. Now, when I throw this up on the screen, you're probably thinking, all right, he's going to preach to a very limited demographic because of the age of today's hero. He's probably going to talk to the children and the students because he just got back from camp and it's student takeover. There's kids that are at the doors greeting people. So he's just going to champion the next generation. And the way I see it, there's three different perspectives that are probably inside of this room today. The first perspective is this. God can't use me because of my age. And this statement is true for those of us who are children, who are teenagers, or young adults. And then the second perspective that is inside of this room is this. God can't use me because of my age. See how that was different? God can't use me because of my age. And this statement is true for those of us who may be 30 plus, who may be divorced or married or single. And then there's a third perspective. And that perspective, yes, you guessed it, is God can't use me Because of my age. And this statement applies to those of us who are elderly or retired or on the brink of retirement. Or they're experiencing what we call in the good old U.S. of A. the golden years. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say to you. It does not matter how old you are. Josiah was eight. We could be eight, eighteen 80, somewhere in between or beyond. We could be experiencing a midlife crisis. We could have one foot on this earth and one foot in the proverbial grave. 
It doesn't matter what your age is inside of this room. The very fact that you have a heart that is beating inside of your chest and a pulse that's racing in your wrist, it means that you are worthy to be called a hero because heroes have... No, absolutely, patently, 100% false. Now, you're thinking, uh, what did he say? Let me back it up and notice what he says about whether or not you're, quote, worthy to be used by God. Let me back this up and just pay close attention to the language he uses. This is where there is a major error going on here. Earth and one foot in the proverbial grave. It doesn't matter what your age is inside of this room. The very fact that you have a heart that is beating inside of your chest and a pulse that's racing in your wrist, it means that you are worthy to be called a hero because heroes have no age limits. Nope. Absolutely false. The uh, hey, Listen, yes, God can, quote, use you, all right? But listen to what he said. If you are breathing, have a pulse, then you are worthy to embrace the hero within. Christianity teaches that every single human being, that would include me, and it definitely includes you and others, who's a direct descendant of Adam and Eve, is born dead in trespasses and sins. And there's no hero inside of us. Instead, there's a sinner. And that Christ died for our sins. So here's the idea. God definitely, quote, uses sinners to proclaim his word, to preach the gospel, call other sinners to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God uses sinners to disciple other sinners who are Christians, disciple them in the faith and the teachings of Jesus, and God uses them. You know, if God didn't use sinners, who would he use? You know what I'm saying? But just because you're breathing doesn't make you worthy. In fact, Scripture says because you're breathing, um, you are unworthy because you are a direct descendant of Adam and Eve. So we've got a bad theology going along with this weird inserting of this idea in the Bible that isn't there about embracing a hero within you. No, no, no. You need to repent of the sinner that you are, of the sin that burbles up from within you. And I want us to get over this this idea that heroes have to be a certain shape or a certain size or have a certain hair color or be a certain age. Heroes have no age limits. And you can embrace the hero within regardless of what your age is. Hero. Well, why would I want to embrace a hero within me? Where does the Bible tell me to do this? Answer, it doesn't. Heroes also have God-sized expectations. What does this look like? If I were to have God-sized expectations, what would, what would that look like? What would be some things that would describe me if I were to have God-sized expectations? If we were to have God-sized expectations? Well, you haven't even demonstrated from Second Chronicles that Josiah had God-sized expectations. We would be overachievers. There would be this high ridiculous, unattainable mindset that we would constantly live in. We would set these ridiculous, unattainable goals that frankly, people would look at you and laugh and go, there's... Where does the Bible say that? 
that we would have these really bizarre, unattainable goals and people would laugh at us for them. Where does it say that in the Bible? I don't know of any passage that says anything of the sort, and Second Chronicles doesn't teach it. No, there's no way you would be able to do that. I went to high school with you. There's no way that you would be able to accomplish that. I know your mom and dad. I know the family that you came out of. I know you. There's no way that you can accomplish fill in the blank that because of who you are. You see, people who set God-sized expectations, man, they have these ridiculous type ideas of what they can accomplish and it's not this self-confidence, even though... You know, this is a fine assertion on your part, but you haven't actually demonstrated that any of this is actually taught in the Bible. Show me from a clear passage that this is what God is saying he wants me to do. There are moments when they may come across as very cocky and arrogant and condescending. It's not that they have a tremendous amount of confidence in themselves. And if you kind of dig back the layers, you'll find somebody that's really got a deflated self-image. It's just that they totally believe that there is a God in heaven that can accomplish more than we could ever do inside of our human flesh. And they believe it. They're crazy enough to believe it. And I want us to begin to smoke that same stuff today. I want us to begin to believe that God can do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could ever ask or think. That goal that you have said, there's no way I'll be able to accomplish because of this, that, or the other. Again, what, what have you guys done with the actual preaching of repentance? and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins so that all who call upon the Lord will be saved. Here you got all who call upon the Lord will have a big, hairy, audacious, God-sized goal for their life. The Bible doesn't teach that. Now let me give you an example, okay? You familiar with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, okay? Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's found in the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And I want you to consider this story. Um, and what I mean by that is listen to it in accord with this idea that God has this big, hairy, audacious thing that he wants to do in your life. Okay? <clears throat> Luke, chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. These, this is Jesus telling the story. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, and he was covered with sores, and he desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now stop for a second, okay? Which of these two men, Lazarus or the uh, the poor guy, the guy with the sores, um, was living, well, had big expectations for his life, was accomplishing things in his life. God was, quote, using him. Well, if, if the, that's the criteria, you'd have to guess and go, well, probably the, the, uh, the, um, the rich guy, right? I mean, Lazarus, I mean, that guy is poor. 
it says that he was placed or laid at the gate of the rich man's house every single day, and he was covered with sores, and he didn't even have enough to be fed, and he was desiring to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table like a dog. And so, yeah, I mean, the guy who had the big, hairy, audacious dream and God was using him was clearly, clearly the rich man. The rich man who had the nice clothes and the lots of money and all that kind of stuff, right? Wrong. Now watch this, okay? The one who didn't live a purpose-driven life, the one who didn't embrace the hero within him, the one who accomplished practically nothing in life, okay? That would be Lazarus, the poor man, okay? Verse 22, it says, The poor man died, and he was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell, in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner are bad things. But now he is comforted here. You are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, Hey, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Huh. Who had the purpose-driven life here? The rich man did. Where did he end up? Hell. Who, for all intents and purposes, looked like God wasn't using him at all? The poor man, Lazarus, the one covered in sores that the dogs licked. He was so poor, didn't he, he was longing to be, to, to be fed from the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man's, um, you know, at the rich man's house. Huh. Who embraced the hero within him? Well, the rich man did. Who didn't? Lazarus, the poor guy. There was no hero to speak of. He was poor, covered in sores, a beggar. And yet he's the one who ends up in heaven. Why? Because despite the fact that he was a complete human train wreck and by all intents and purposes didn't accomplish a single thing as far as purpose is concerned in this lifetime, he was penitent. And he trusted in the mercy of God for the forgiveness of his sins. See how important that message is as opposed to finding your purposes? Other, I want you to understand you can accomplish it. Raise the bar. Make sure that your expectations are God-sized. Josiah's father and grandfather, they're textbook examples of what it looks like to live well beneath your godly potential.
But Josiah is a... Keep in mind, Lazarus, the poor guy who ended up in heaven, he lived way below his godly potential. I mean, serious. What kind of potential does it take to be laid at in front of a rich man's house and beg and be covered with sores? What kind of potential is that, huh? The textbook example of what it looks like to live above and to have God-sized expectations. And if we were to create a continuum on this stage today, I want to ask the question, how would you rank yourself? If one, if how would you rank the poor guy named Lazarus? How would you rank him? If one would be villain-like, like Josiah's dad and grandfather, having low expectations, and 10 were to be Josiah-like, having God-sized expectations, where would you rank your life today? Are they God-sized? Where would we rank ourselves today on this continuum, on this scale? Let's get more specific. What about as a father? What about as a mother? What about as a son, as a daughter? What about as a Mountain Lake attender? What about as a volunteer here at Mountain Lake Church? How would you rank your generosity? Is it hero-like? Is it God-sized? How would you rank yourself as a boss, as an employee, as an employer? Would you be a villain on the scale or would you have God-sized expectations and people look at you and go, man, they have totally bought in. They are embracing the hero that lives inside of them, that lives inside of all of us. Where would you rank yourself? Regardless of where you fall at on the scale, this is what I want to encourage us to do this week and beyond, is that you may be at a one, raise the bar. And you may raise the bar to a five. And we may say, oh man, a five, that's not a significant jump. If you're at a one, it's a significant jump. Raise the bar. If you're at a seven, raise the bar. Raise it to an eight or a nine or a 10. Expect more out of yourself. Let's expect more. Not because of our good looks or our strength or our character or our wits or our intelligence. I know some of you. It can't be because of that. <laughs> no, it has to be because of God. It has to be because of God. And there are some of us that are inside of this room and you just say, man, I can't do that. I can't. I hate the words. I can't. My son will use it occasionally. I can't. And I say, son, don't ever say those words again. I'd rather you talk about my mama than to say I can't. I hate those two words. I can't. But here's the deal. Most of us have some pretty legitimate excuses that are tethered to our I can'ts, don't we? I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that you haven't had a hard life. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that the environment that you were raised in. Well, you're standing up there pretending like you're giving a biblical sermon. The stuff that you had to put up with in your neighborhood or inside of your family or inside of your school. Some of you guys may have been bullied 
for a large portion of your life. And that's, that's a legitimate excuse. That's, that's a totally legitimate excuse connected to your I can't. But as we look at Josiah, did he not have some pretty legitimate excuses? That would have caused him to just throw his hands up in the air and say, I can't do that. I can't do it. Has your grandfather ever sacrificed children? Don't raise your hand if he has. <laughs> has your father been so evil that they erected idolatrous poles and worshipped them? Josiah had every excuse in the book, including his age. He's eight years old. And I know eight-year-olds. I just got through coaching 10 of them. But he never let I can't be a part of his vocabulary because he had these high, ridiculous expectations that he had set for himself. Okay, let's read a little bit of Second Chronicles 34 since um, we haven't gotten to the Bible yet. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so when he's 16 years old, listen to this. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he's 16 years old, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year... Um, this would be when he's 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherium and the carved and the metal images, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the Asherium and carved and the metal images and made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. You see what's going on there? Yeah, he didn't do all these things when he was eight. He did that. He began to seek the Lord when he was 16. And then after really being a Christian, if you want to use that term for the Old Testament saints, that's a good way to put it. For four years, that's when he decides he's going to take action against the idolaters because he has the power to do so in the kingdom of Israel, which is the kingdom that God established. We continue. That's just one side of the point. Let's not eliminate ourselves from embracing the hero with our excuses. Let's learn from this eight-year-old king. Let's learn from Josiah. Let's learn from this hero. But the other side of the point is, let's not let others eliminate themselves because of their excuses. Have you ever been sitting with someone and they just are constantly talking about why they can't do this or why they can't do that because of their past and they have all of these nasty, legitimate excuses that they bring up. And our propensity is to say, man, you're right. No wonder why you, you act the way you do. No wonder why some of us have a certain type of behavior. And we let them off the hook. Let's not let them off the hook anymore. Let's, let's raise the bar. Let's raise the expectations for those that we're connected with, whether it be our family or our friends or our colleagues. Let's raise the bar. Let's raise the bar. 
Let me give you an example of this. And I know that you're probably not going to believe this when I say it. But there were some parents when I was coaching my eight-year-old boys that thought my expectations were a bit ridiculous. I know that you wouldn't believe that. I know that I know that that's hard to imagine, but there were some parents that thought, man, he just expects too much. His expectations are a bit ridiculous for our eight-year-old kids. For example, it is said that if a batter gets up to bat and hits a hard ground ball to third or to short, or a soft one for that matter, that the chances of that batter making it to first safely are good because of the arm strength and athleticism of eight-year-old kids. I could agree with this, especially at the beginning of the season when I looked at six out of the ten of our kids that had never played baseball before and couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with a baseball. I could have believed this. And I could have had the expectation set really low. Oh, just try to make it over there or try to get to the ball. Just try to do it. But I wasn't going to have that expectation for my third baseman and my shortstop, especially my shortstop, because his name was Tyson Stanley. I wasn't going to have that expectation. I fully expected them, and I told them at practice. I fully expected them, if a ball is hit in your general direction, I want you to have a wide base, your butt down, tip of the glove on the ground. I want you to field it cleanly, and I want you to make an accurate throw all the way to first base. And I fully expect that umpire to say, out. And did you know, or do you know, that out of dozens of hard ground balls hit the third base and short, that I can count on one hand how many times that kid was safe? Why? Well, I know arm strength and athleticism plays a part of that, but so does expectations. I expected them to do it. And they did it. Because I expected them to. If I'm going to be accused of anything at the end of my life, Lord, let it be that he expected too much. I don't want to be accused or be that guy. Do you really think on the judgment day that's really going to matter? God's going to go, wow, man, that guy expected too much. What about repentance and the forgiveness of sins? How about a real biblical lesson here? This is not that. Guy that expected too little. He didn't expect much at all out of people. His kids are crazy. People that he pastored are crazy. He didn't expect anything out of them. You know, if you expect a little, you'll get a little. If we expect a lot, we'll get a lot. Yeah, I expect you to do what the Bible says and preach the word during sermon time. You're not doing that. If we expect nothing, don't be surprised when we get nothing. Raise the expectations. I think I know Sean's hard enough by now, after being on staff for three and a half years, that that's the same accusation that he wants to have placed on Mountain Lake Church. Is that we are a church that expects a lot. Some of you are like, mm-hmm. We expect... So what? You're not preaching Christ. You're not preaching the Word. Who cares what you expect? Expect a lot. We expect you to serve. We expect you to give. We expect you to participate. 
And because we expect a lot, you know what I've discovered? We get a lot. Well, Christ in his word expects you to be preaching the word and preaching him, and you're not doing that. You guys have risen to the occasion. People will rise to the expectations that you place on them. And you have totally risen to the occasion. That is why people are taking vacation days. Dozens of leaders are taking vacation days to go down to Myrtle Beach to spend time and to mentor and to develop the next generation because we expected them to. And lives are being changed and transformed. And our tra- so, so what if lives are being changed and transformed? Obviously, it's not, they're not being transformed through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. I mean, life transformation can happen in group therapy, which is pretty much what this is that we're listening to. Church is better for it because the expectations that we place on the leadership inside of our student community called Evolve are high. That is the reason why when we said, hey, we want to package 60,000 meals together, that we had 150% of people show up. We needed 200, 300 and something people showed up to package meals. We had more than enough. And the guy who was over Outreach Incorporated, the company that we used to package together these meals, he called me later that night and he said, man, I have never seen that many meals come together that fast. I said, that's because we got high expectations for our people. Doesn't surprise me because they always rise to the occasion. That is the reason why we see you guys coming and serving with a fervency every single week, week in and week out. That is the reason why our greater impact offering was over a hundred thousand dollars. And we have ministry money to go out and to bless our community and to impact and to impart gospel into our world, to infuse the life of Christ into the people that are walking the streets inside of Forsyth and Dawson County is because we expect a lot. And I know that you guys had to cut things out of your budget and you had to reorder your finances and you had to choose not to do some things in order to give to the greater impact offering. But the one thing I'm not going to apologize for is for setting our expectations high because we're able to do a lot because you guys have bought in and you realize yeah, that the expect... But you're not doing the thing that matters. Preaching Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Expectations are high around here. Want to be a hero? Have God-sized expectations. And I can tell that Josiah not only placed a high premium on himself, not only did he have God-sized expectations, but he had God-sized expectations for others. If you don't believe me, go to chapter 33. Read about the culture. Read about how evil and idolatrous and terrible the nation of Israel was underneath the two previous kings, and then go read chapter 34. What was acceptable in chapter 33 was no longer acceptable in chapter 34. Manasseh and Ammon, they did evil things. Josiah said, hey, we're not doing that stuff anymore. We're going to embrace the hero And we're going to begin to see reform, reformation take place inside of our surroundings. Heroes reform their surroundings. 
When you raise the bar on yourself and others, you can't help but to have reformation. You can't help to have drastic change that takes place. Let's look at some of the steps that Josiah took to reform his surroundings. In verses 3 through 7, it says that he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all its idolatry. He tore down altars of other gods and crushed its idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Jerusalem. The next part is so good and so thorough. Heroes are thorough too. That should have been a lower third, but I didn't put it up there. This next part is really, really good. i got to read it. It's in verse 5. It says, Josiah, he burned the bones of the priests on their altars. Now, some of these priests who had erected these idolatrous gods, they were already dead. You know what Josiah said? Go dig them up. Bring me their bones. And he burned them on the altar, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, this hero absolutely destroyed the bad guys. In verses 8 through 13, he took the taxes of the people and he used it to renovate and rebuild the temple to worship the one true God. Unlike our government, he knew how to spend tax money correctly. I had to say that. I'm sorry. While renovating. You're going to clap for that. I said some really good stuff before that too. Wow. While renovating and rebuilding the temple, they discovered the book of the law, which would have been the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. And I want you to listen carefully to what Josiah did. He took these five books of the law and he opened them up and it says that everybody from the nation of Israel was there. Everybody was present. They did a roll call probably. You here? Benjamin, Joe, Sally, everybody's here. Now that everybody's here, let us begin. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, and he read every single word of the law in their hearing. And he made people repent. I wish we could do that now. We're going to make you repent. No, he didn't make them repent. He did have them come and hear what God's word says. And when they heard it, they repented. Now, the sad thing is, is that in this particular story of the, you know, the telling of the story of Josiah, we're not hearing what God's word says. It's as if the, well, God's word, the Bible is lost. We haven't really learned what this passage is saying. Josiah would be appalled by the telling and abuse and twisting of this story of his, which points us to God. He made people repent. I want you to listen to this single verse of Scripture that would describe this hero's leadership to a T. It's in verse 33. He's probably in his 30s at this point. Josiah, in verse 33 of chapter 34, removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God as long as he lived. They did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. (laughs) That is awesome. That's what a hero looks like. No, that's what a Christian king looks like. Um, This is really sad. This isn't about finding the hero within. Notice, they found the book of the law, they read it, they repented. Why don't you open up the Bible and preach it? The way Josiah would have had it preached. 
He doesn't care about his age. He has God-sized expectations. And reformation takes place. Reformation takes place. The surroundings change. We see that taking place on a regular basis at Mountain Lake. But we want to see more of that. What would it look like for us to forget our age, for us to have God-sized expectations, for us? What would it look like for you guys to actually read and preach God's Word? What would that look like? To reform our surroundings. It may mean taking that communication card and indicating an area to serve in and you giving 110% of yourself to that area. You selling out to a particular area inside of our church. Because we need you back in Evolve. We need some grandmothers and some grandfathers that will help mentor and shape the next generation. We need some middle-aged women to help shape and transform some of our ladies back there that have no idea what it looks like to live a godly life because they don't have an example of it at home. We need you back there. We need you in our children's ministry at Mountain Lake Church. We need you to be able to circle up with with eight or ten little kids and teach them the truth, something they're probably not getting at home. And And they're definitely not getting it there at Mountain Lake Church, that's for sure, if they're attending the adult uh, sermon. And to make phone calls during the week to make sure that they're going to be here. And to write them birthday cards. They may not even get a birthday card. Write a birthday card to them on their birthdays. We need you in the children's ministry. We need you during the week. We need you to say, I'll step up. I'll carve time out of my schedule in order for me to live uh, boldly. And in order for me to live out loud inside of the context of a life group for everybody else to see. For me to mentor and to help shape people's finances. For me to mentor and to help shape people. Yeah, why aren't you uh, preaching law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins? So they can hear about their crucified risen Savior and repent and have eternal life. What's the, what good is it to have well-managed finances when upon your death you go to hell? People's goals and for them to come alive spiritually. We need you inside of our life groups here at Mountain Lake. We need you serving coffee. We need you in the parking lot. We need you to put a smile on your face so when that person that is broken and discouraged rolls onto the campus here at Mount Lake Church, that the first thing that they see is somebody who is excited to see them. We need you here at Mount Lake. We need you to step up to the plate and embrace the hero that lives inside of yourself. And yes, I am talking to you because there's some... There is no hero living inside of me or you or your friends or anybody at your church. Somebody that is sitting inside of this room today that would say he's talking and he's preaching, but he's talking to everybody else. He's not talking to me. I am talking to you. We need you. Step up and embrace... So basically, this is a browbeating to get more people to volunteer. Got it. Embrace the hero that lives inside of you. It's there. 
No, it's not. If it was there, God's word would actually say that. It doesn't, so that's a lie. Forget your age. Have God-sized expectations. And watch the surroundings around you, around us, begin to change. I was in my driveway, and a father rolled up to drop off his son to spend the night with Tyson, my son. He's a professional wrestler. I just had to say that just so you don't, you don't want to mess with me. I, got, I, you know, I know people. And we were, we were sitting in my driveway and just talking as his son scampered off into my home to find Tyson. And we started talking about sports. What a shock. And we start talking about some issues that we saw inside of the booster clubs within our county that we live, Hall County. And he said something that just rattled my cage at that moment, but it stuck with me. For a very long time after that, he said, man, Blake, I see all these problems and we're pointing them out, but I want to be the guy that does something about it. I thought, wow, that statement right there embodies what it looks like to embrace the hero is to be a person, be a God, be a girl, be a mom, be a dad, be a friend, be a boss, be an employer, be an employee that does something about it. But in order to do that, we got to forget our age because heroes have no age limit. We've got to raise the bar and have God-sized expectations, believe the ridiculous, dream big, and our surroundings will begin to reform. And we'll see change. And there's no greater fulfillment. Let me tell you something. There's no greater fulfillment than to look around. Yeah, just shout it because that makes it more true. A group of eight-year-old boys, six out of ten couldn't play the game of baseball. And at the end of the season, you're undefeated. That's reforming. And I thought we were playing baseball. We weren't playing baseball. We were making them better men, better people, teaching them work ethic, teaching them what it looks like to embrace the hero inside of them. And they did it. And they did it. And you can too. So what? I mean, what does this have to do with Christ, sound doctrine or anything that's actually in the Bible? We can too. As a church, as a family, we can do it. Father, we love you. So- Done. Yeah, sorry. You don't get to pray for us. What's the point of having a Bible if you're not actually preach it and teach it in context and rightly handle it? And when you don't rightly handle it and you don't preach and teach it correctly, you know what you end up preaching about? You. And that's who we preached about. That couldn't save anybody. It wouldn't save a single soul. I mean, uh-huh. So frustrating that this is what passes as cutting-edge, relevant, life-changing sermons. Far from it. This is so vapid and shallow. I I mean, how anybody actually believes, oh, this is what God wants us to do, and this is what a Christ-centered biblical sermon sounds like, is beyond me. 
It's as if people have stuck their head in the sand and have liked the smell and taste of sand up their nose that they have no idea that there's actual true living water that we can have in Scripture. And you tell them that and they say, oh, no, no, I'm fine with the sand that I'm getting up my nose with my head stuck in the ground. Oy. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of our sins. Amen.